0: Uh, let's read our next part, then, of Scripture, and it is Judges chapter 2, verse 18 to 20, and it actually it ties into the sermon. Um, you need to remember this, because I'm going to reference it. Judges two eighteen through 20. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Let's pray. Lord, we fight you so often. We sing Lord of all. We call you king and we fight you left and right. Lord, take our rebellious hearts and change them. Keep us from being like Dan not because Dan was so awful, but because we so easily become just like them, and that is awful. May we honor you, may we obey you, may we praise you, for you are Lord of all, amen. In turn to Judges 18, that is where we will be today. I'm going to put up some vacation pictures for you. We were in Israel. It was sort of a vacation. It was a study tour, actually. We were in Israel recently, my wife and I. And these are some of the pictures. And they tie in, the last one will tie into Judges. Uh, It may not actually be one of my pictures. You found an even better one. I was just snapping on my iPhone. This is a plaque that mentions Pontius Pilate. For a long time, nobody thought he existed. And then they find a plaque that confirms, oh yeah, Scripture, which had said he existed all along. Um, I love it. You can't read it, but you can't read Greek anyway, so it's okay. But that says Pontius Pilate was here. It's an amazing, amazing piece of history. Next one up is where it takes place. It's Caesarea. And Herod built all kinds of places. This is one of them. And his building, to be honest, puts Hearst Castle to shame. Now, as amazing as that is, um, and he didn't build one thing. He built many things. He's a horrible person, amazing architect or engineer in terms of that doesn't exist there. Let's put a mountain with a castle inside. Uh, If you've heard of the Sea of Galilee, that's where quite a few of the things take place in the Gospels, that's a boat. They call it the Jesus boat because that's what they would have ridden in. So when it says that Jesus was asleep, he's asleep in that. When you're trying to wonder why Peter's so astonished, Jesus sleeping, that's why. How do you sleep in that when there's a storm going on and everybody else is working to keep it afloat? That's because you have a point. This is where Jesus restored Peter after being denied. And behind that group, that's our group there, there's a cathedral that celebrates where Jesus fried fish on the beach to eat with Peter and restore him, to eat with the disciples. And then right next to where we are, there's this sign that's gonna pop up that tells you you can't have barbecues. Think about that for a minute. We do that all the time. Let's celebrate God, but not the way that God did something. Let's do it totally different. You can't do that. Now, you know, we complain about bureaucracy. The reason that bureaucracy exists, though, is imagine how we would just destroy the place if it allowed barbecues. It would be trashy. It would be horrible. You couldn't commemorate it. Um, But it is very interesting. talks about the human heart for a minute there. This is a synagogue that's built in a little village along the Sea of Galilee, I think I mentioned it before here. It took 70 years to build and that means the people who built it knew when they started they would never get to use it. Imagine the problems that would be solved in the church if we thought 70 years down the road instead of just today. How, how much less we'd fight if we took that perspective. This is where Peter said, or Jesus is talking to Peter and he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's talking about his kingdom. That's the gates of hell. It's what they called it. It's a horrible, wretched place. There's awful pagan worship. I encourage you not to tell your kids about what happened there. It's inappropriate, don't tell them. Don't Google it. Go to Wikipedia and maybe find out. It's a wretched place and when Jesus says that, that's the gates of hell will not prevail against my kingdom. Here's another funny sign. It says, it's talking about the living water and then it says you can neither swim in it nor walk upon it. I really don't know what that picture means where it has the guy walking on water but apparently they don't want Jesus to show up there. It's another place to celebrate Jesus' ministry. It's kind of entertaining. Again, it's just, it's our hearts, our signs. Um, so goofy. This is the Roman road, if you've heard of that. That's 2,000 years old right there. You can still walk upon it because it's that sturdy. It's amazing. I'd encourage you, by the way, figure out what the Roman road in the book of Romans is. It's a great way to share the gospel with people. That road leads to the next picture. will pop up in a second. Love that road, I've talked about that so many times, the Romans road in scripture. That's what it leads to, to this amazing Hellenistic city. but Hellenism meant that the Jews had adopted Rome, they adopted Greek living. They were no longer living for God in that city, they were living just like the world. Interestingly, just to the left on that hill is a McDonald's. It's funny, there's this amazing metropolis they're still discovering, and then there's McDonald's. This is from the temple area, and you're looking out, or at the temple area, you're looking out, and it's a bunch of tombs. It's where Jesus says, those whitewashed sepulchers. You're just a bunch of cleaned up gravestones. When he's talking to the people, he's talking, and it's right there, they know what he's talking, he's pointing. You're just like that. The Pool of Bethesda, Pool of Bethsaida. Um that's where the guy's crawling to be saved. They believed the water was miraculous. It still exists. It's amazing. Jesus walks up to the guy and doesn't send him to the water. He just heals him. Later on, he walks up to a blind guy who's not far from this, and instead of sending him about a half a block to this, he sends him like two miles downhill with mud on his eyes to go clean up in a different pool because he didn't want them to be confused by what healed the guy. This is a Tel Dan. It's one side of it. It's, I believe it's called Abraham's Gate. It's most likely where Abraham went up to, when Lot was captured and he takes, takes Lot back. He rescues Lot. That's probably where it takes place. And that's where we're gonna park today at Tel Dan. Here's one of the walls. Tel is just kind of an architectural term. It's the city of Dan. You see, the city of Dan exists where it's not supposed to. It's not in the inheritance of Dan. It's in a different part of Israel. There's a reason that wall is so big. They all would have had big walls, don't get me wrong. There's a reason that wall is so big and there's a reason it still stands in the way that it stands today. It's a beautiful place. If you love ancient architecture, beautiful place. It's because they had to be fortified because they were fighting for their life, their entire history. And the sad thing is they didn't have to. Our story's about that. Part of Judges we're gonna look at is about that. So you turn to Judges 18, and hopefully you're a little familiar with Judges. If not, Judges chapter two, the part I read, is a key verse for Judges. There's a couple of them. The book ends with one of them, and you're gonna hear a glimpse of it in the, in the first part uh, of verse one where it talks about there being no king. One of the big phrases in Judges is, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. Well, just describe the United States of America, by the way, but if we as Christians are doing that, that is not a good place to be. If we are doing what is right in our eyes instead of what is right in God's eyes, we are in trouble, always. We are in trouble. And that's where you find the nation of Israel very quickly after Joshua dies and by the end of, really by the beginning of the book of Judges. The other thing, though, is Judges chapter 2, the one I read, there's a cycle they sin and they re- repent because they're broken and they're defeated and they're, they're helpless. So they finally turn to God as a last resort and God saves them and he brings a judge, not a king, mind you, a judge, to stand as a leader in a moment and he's with the judge and he beats everybody and the judges are not great people, most of them. They're very weak and broken and fragile. They're not great leaders. Some of them are selfish Some of them are sinful. I mean, we're all sinful, but in a very blatant, overt way, it's not right. The nation is not at all what it's supposed to be. And they go through what is often called a cycle. Really, it's a spiral because it gets worse and worse. It points out they send and they repented, and then they sinned more than their fathers did. And then then they repented. And they sinned more than their fathers and their grandfathers did, and they repented. And they sinned more than their fathers and their grandfathers and their great grandfathers and they kept getting worse, and worse, and worse. And the cycle you see in Judges is Joshua's there and they're, they're obeying God but they didn't wipe everybody out so they didn't obey God all the way Joshua dies, and he challenges them to finish it off. And then you get a judge named Deborah. And Deborah's actually a good leader. But even Deborah says, I'm not supposed to be the leader. Where are the men to lead? I know that's not really popular in our culture. Ladies, you have to come to grips with what the Bible says about that. Guys, before you don't let ladies lead at all, by the way, Deborah was still a leader, there's a balance there, too, and we like to fight on both sides, but already the nation's falling apart They're, After Joshua, there's no men to lead. And then you get a guy named Gideon, who's a chicken, and he's hiding. And then you get this other guy that promises to kill the first thing that comes out, and oh, it's his daughter. And nobody remembers how to handle a wrong vow to God. God doesn't want the girl dead. God wants them to pay attention to his word. But the most righteous person in the picture, the girl, doesn't know his word either. So she doesn't know how to not die. But you see the law, that part we like to avoid because it's boring, the law talked about that. But they've forgotten the law. And then you go to Samson, who somehow makes it in Hebrews 11 and every Christian since then goes, how? How is he an example of faith? He did one good thing at the end, which included killing himself. It's a complicated good thing. It also involved killing a bunch of other people too. But they were bad people. It's it's a messy story. And then at the end, there's stuff we don't even like talking about. And I'd encourage you adults, go ahead and read it at home. Maybe not with your families if you have little kids. Because Judges at the end is disturbing. And Judges 18 is the start of that horrifying, this is the low of lows in the nation of Israel. It's easy to miss. Because it's not as horrifying as dismembering somebody, which is at the end of Judges. It's not, as, it's not as attention-getting as that, but it's just as bad. In fact, to be honest, it's worse because it's what leads to the other thing. The rebelliousness against God. So let me read Judges 18, 1 through 5, and then we'll go back verse by verse. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not come home, had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. If if we were at the melodrama, this is where everybody would cry out, oh, okay, it's so sad for Dan. It's not. It's not at all sad for Dan. That's that's our Americanism. We don't read the old Bible. Old Testament sometimes coming out. We don't know the backstory. We'll get to that. It has not yet come into the inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zora and Ashtael to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, "Go explore the land." The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night when they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for him and said, he has hired me and I am his priest. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. And if you're familiar with chapters 19, 20, and 21, it's horrifying And if you're like me, you read Judges 18 and it's not horrifying or at least you miss how horrifying it is. It's cool having been at Tell Dan, you kind of get the story, it makes it pop out when you read Judges, it's the city of Dan. And it's a city that's out of place. Go back to verse one. In those days Israel had no king. There's a problem with this verse. Israel has a king. It's God. It's God. Israel has always had a king. It was always supposed to be God. Now, blessedly through Christ, it is God. But they're leaderless, meaning they're not looking at God. The reason they need a judge is they're not paying attention to God. In 1 Samuel, eventually when we see the last of the judges, Samuel, it's kind of a little different. He's the anti-Samson, by the way. It's pretty interesting. But when he's leaving the scene, Israel's crying out for a king. And God uses that in salvation history, which is amazing. But it doesn't change that this verse is traumatic. It is just as bad as what comes up in the rest of Judges, where they almost wipe out an entire tribe and the things that happened before that. This is supposed to be so, just as bad because it screams out this nation who's called out of Egypt to be God's people are not God's people, at least not in practice. They've completely forgotten who God is and what he's done. And in those days, Israel had no king, and then later on, they just did whatever they felt like doing. And they felt like going north. And trying to find a new place. The second part, in those days, second part of verse one, in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, That sounds like, oh, they haven't had a home yet. Everybody wants a home. We're renting. We want to own our own home, at least up until the point when we get in our own home and the roof starts leaking and you want to go back to renting so you can call somebody else to fix it. But we want to have our eighth of an acre, quarter acre, half acre, one acre, 100 acres. We want a place that nobody can take away from us despite the history of the world says people take it away from you. We want ours. Nobody can tell me what to do we can make it cozy, white picket fence, pink picket fence, if you don't like white, I don't know what color you like on your fence. We wanna own it, not owe the bank, grumble about taxes on it. We want our property, our place. The problem is they had a place. Don't picture somebody who's renting and just wants to not lose that money to somebody else all the time, but you know, invest. Know that this is a people that already have a home and they are unsatisfied. This is a people that God said it's right there. They just don't want to go there. Now, you got to remember, they come from a people, and by people, I don't so much mean the nation of Israel, that's historically true, but really, it's just people. We're all this way. A people who saw the land, God said, go take it. And they said, no, we want to wander around for 40 years instead while we all die off. That'd be the equivalent of you own a home, you go to the cul-de-sac, and you live in the cul-de-sac for 40 years while your whole family dies off so your grandkids can inherit your house. That's what the nation of Israel did. They weren't lost in the wilderness, they were left in the wilderness not being allowed to take the land. The wilderness just isn't that big, the part that they were traveling in. But if you go over, keep your finger in, Judges, you don't have to. If you go over to Joshua chapter 19, verse 40, it tells you all about where Dan is supposed to be. It tells you about where Dan is left, where the spies are going from, and it's the allotment for Dan. Joshua 19, verse 40, is in the boring part of scripture we usually skip over. It's not boring, it's meticulous. It's land property rights. It's a document. We don't go down to city records to read it to put ourselves to sleep or to, to thrill us with a novel, but it's important. It's not boring, it's important. It's just a slow movement of music, so to speak. Joshua 19, verse 40, the seventh lot, meaning God's in control of this. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of Dan, clan by clan. The territory of their inheritance included Zora, Eshtel, Ir, Shemesh, Shalabin. Ij- I didn't practice these beforehand, by the way. Aijalon, Ithla, Elon, Timnah, Ekron, Eltica, Gibbethon, Balith, Jehud, Bene, Barak, Gath, Ramon, Mejarchon, great name, great name, and Rakon, with the area facing Joppa. And then verse 47. But the Danites had difficulty taking possession of their territory. So they went up and attacked, attacked, mind you. Leshem took it, put it to the sword, and occupied it. They settled in Leshem and named it Dan after their forefather. Their towns and their villages were the inheritance of the tribe of Dan, clan by clan. God gave them a gift. They didn't want it. He gave them an inheritance and and they walked away from it. And they walked away to another part of Israel. We'll show you that in a minute, but first verse two. So the Danites sent five warriors from Zorah and Eshdael, those are the first two cities mentioned, to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all their clans. They told them, go explore the land. The men entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah where they spent the night. If you have a map in the back of the Bible, there's gonna be one that pops on the screen. Dan is down on the coast. Okay, there's that weird orange blob in the middle of the purple blob. I'm terrific at explaining maps, by the way. So you're looking on the screen. There's the purple part at the bottom, orange part there, that little pink part at the top of the purple, that's Dan. It's on the coast. It's on a trade route, meaning they'd have been rich or at least had the ability to be. And instead, they sent all the way up to where Naphtali is, up at the top, there's the city of Dan. Keep in mind... They didn't want the coastal area because there were, it was too much of a fight. Historically, the city of Dan is where everybody invaded to take it on the nation of Israel. The reason they had to have giant thick walls, because they fought their entire history. They traded the coast, God's inheritance, for a lifetime battle. When Tiff and I were there, by the way, it's the only place we heard gunshot. It's still on the border, the edge it's still in the disputed area. And the tour we were with, one of the times, there you go, the two boxes. One of the times that we were there, they actually had a tank roll by while they were, it was just on patrol, but roll by while they were talking with a bunch of youth pastors and people. And then when we were there, a little later, we're talking and where the Abraham's Gate was, where he rescued Lot, there's, for about five minutes, gunfire on the other side of the hill. We don't know if it was an exercise or if it was actual fight, skirmish. But they're still fighting there. Dan traded that. They didn't want any part of what God had. So God's their king and they reject him. They have an inheritance and they reject him. They have the wrong plan and they're in the wrong place. And on top of that, there's a little deja vu when they send out the spies. They're reliving Israel's history instead of enjoying the part of Israel's history that they're supposed to be in. Back to Judges 18. And you have a really interesting part of Scripture where it shows the people to be 100% clueless because they ask great questions and forget to ask themselves. Verse three. When they were near Micah's house, this is alluding to chapter 17, by the way. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned in there and asked him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? Why are you here? See, Micah 17 is again where you need to know those slower parts in scripture, the ones we're tempted to say are boring. It tells you in the law everything you need to know about worship in the nation of Israel. And that includes a couple things like you're not supposed to have a priest for your own house. The priests are in Levitical cities or they're in Jerusalem and if they're in Levitical cities, then they go to Jerusalem all the time. So you have a priest that's out of place in chapter 17, and now in chapter 18, you have a tribe that's out of place. That should horrify you if you know the nation of Israel, if you know God's promises, if you know what God's brought them into. The nation is crumbling to pieces. You have a priest that doesn't know what it means to be a priest, and you have a tribe that doesn't know what it means to be a tribe in the nation of Israel. And that tribe asked that priest three questions. And they're all questions the tribe should be asking themselves. They're not wrong questions. Sometimes we land on wrong questions. They're the right questions. They're just not asking the right person. Although the Levites should come to grips with this too. Who brought you here? Dan? Dan, who brought you to this part of the nation? This is not your home. You're supposed to be down on the coast. Because Dan's answer, if they had asked that, could not have been got. God put the lot on the coastal area. He said, Dan, I have a wonderful place for you. I had it in mind for you before the creation of the world, before the fall, before Egypt, before the exodus, before those people that you need to drive out ever existed. I knew this was your home, who brought you here? Well, not God. What are you doing in this place, Dan? What are you doing, Dan? Why are you up here? Go home, Dan. Listen to God, Dan. You're out of place. Why are you here? Dan, why are you here? Well, because we're afraid of them why are you afraid of them I'm with you I'm God that brought you out of Egypt powerful Egypt these are places and people that after 450 years of waiting patiently for them to repent I'm going to use you to come in with my wrath why are you here We'll come back to this, but quite often we ask good questions, we just forget to ask ourselves. It goes back to that kingship verse in verse 1. Verse 4 he told them what Micah had done for him and said, He's hired me and I am his priest. And not only is he a priest that is in the pocket of an individual person, and, and the history of the church should tell you, and the Bible itself tells you, it's not good if you ever have a pastor in your pocket. If you ever are at a church, this or any other church, and you own the pastor, you are not in a healthy spiritual place. If you have a pastor to just tell you what you wanna hear, you have no pastor. You're in the same place they were in. Because it wasn't meant to be individual on top of that, they're using idols. Dan becomes a beacon of false worship. The city. The city of Dan becomes this horrible place where the nation of Israel, not the only one, but a major one where the nation of Israel keeps running away from God and running to every other idol that exists. You can see an altar there where you can see across the border of Israel as you don't worship God. That's because Dan isn't where Dan's supposed to be. And while it's just a city, it reflects their heart. They're out of place. This Levite's out of place. This Levite is using idols and distracting people from worshiping God, Yahweh. He's hired me, and I am his priest, verse 5. Then they said to him, please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The story continues, but we don't need to. The answer is no. And the, nation, the history of the city of Dan is a resounding no. No. It produces pain. Very cool architecture, but that's not the purpose of a city in the nation of Israel. Very cool ruins, I should say, not just architecture, ruins. Because their heart wandered away from God time and time and time and time again. So we come back to the questions what about us? We are no different than Dan, we are no different than Adam as much as you might hate being represented by Adam, you and I would have done the same thing. I probably would have chopped the tree down, grabbed all the fruit and hoarded it so God couldn't take it away from me. Forget one piece, that was tasty, let's go for more. That's, that's our heart. It's easy to think, oh I wouldn't have done that if I wasn't Adam, sure you would. We do that every day. Well, I wouldn't do that if I was Dan, you would too. How many times do we know what God wants and we want no part in it? I don't like what you said, God. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult. And we go through that same cycle that the nation of Israel, Israel didn't judge us. We rebel until there's no hope and we finally call out to God in and, and repentance and that's good. We should, and he comes to the rescue, and we rejoice all the way up to the point where we completely forget that God helped us, that God was our only hope to begin with. And so we go back to sin, and we just keep going in this cycle over and over and over again. That was the nation of Israel, so often that's us. How many times do we ask maybe even good questions of somebody else, but we forget to ask ourselves that question? or we aren't asking the right question. What's God's will? God's will is in his word. We just don't like it. I work with college students all the time. I love them, they're great people. They're consumed by what's God's will in my life and they always mean what school should I go to, who should I marry, and what job should I have? And those are great questions, but there's some pretty clear statements about God's will that that our nation as a whole doesn't want. It has to do with sexual purity. And it has to do with loving, needy people. And it has to do with obeying God's word. It has to do with submission. First Peter, I can't remember if we've already gotten there, if it's coming up, and the answer is probably both in first Peter. His will is our suffering. But Lord, I don't want to suffer. But you asked me what my will was. My will is that you'll look like Jesus. And Jesus suffered. And Jesus promised Suffering. And we want to avoid pain. Pain that's often produced by our own sinfulness, by the way. We ask our culture, why won't you pay attention to God? In the United States, most of us claim to believe in some kind of nebulous picture of God, at least. Well, why won't you pay attention to him? Instead of asking, Christians, what hope is there of the culture listening to God when we don't listen to God? We vote the same way on abortion. God looks at us and says, what are you doing? We live the same way in our relationships and God looks at us and says, what are you doing? I painted this beautiful picture of marriage. Why are you picking on them not understanding marriage? You don't get it. I don't get it. I don't just mean divorce and living with each other, but God talks to that too. I mean the number of times I look at my spouse and I just don't want to help. I got her fooled, she thinks she's married to this great person. I'm reading a novel, hey, I'll get to that eventually. I know you really need help right now, but I just started the chapter. He's totally got to wait until, well, five chapters later, because I'll forget and I'll keep going. I don't get the picture of marriage. We look at our culture, and we get mad at them for not understanding what it means to worship God, and they look at us and rightly say, well, I haven't figured out from your picture what it looks like, because you're really bad at it. I don't mean to imply grace doesn't cover every single one of those things, by the way. When I'm a lazy husband, grace covers that. Divorce, grace covers that. Abortion, grace covers that. Every part of our wretched, sinful heart that runs from God, grace covers that. Please don't get me wrong. Grace covers that more than you can imagine. But when we get too caught up on asking somebody else that question, we forget to say, wait, wait, did I answer that question? We're acting just like Dan. Why are you here? Good question, Dan, why are you here? You have a different place, a better place. How about this one, it's not a, not a question, but this is the heart of what Dan is doing, and man, as American Christians, this is so often at the heart of what we struggle with. Dan has no king. And so in their mind, they can go to any part of the nation of Israel or world that they want to go to to find a home. They can ignore that the nation of Israel sat down and the equivalent, sorry, it's very crude, but the equivalent is played dice for land allotments that cast lots. I'm not encouraging that as a way to make decisions for which house or job you're gonna have. But that's what they did. The reason was It's a little more complicated than that and it has to do with the law too, it was in there. The reason is God told them to and it left everything in God's hands. So they do that, but Dan decides we don't have to pay attention to what God said. We don't have to pay attention to God's leading on this. We can just go do what we want. We want a cozier home. It's not quite the fit that we thought it would be. What they're really saying is, I have a problem with the leader. We need to learn to put a question in, in front of that. Why do I have a problem with the leader? Why do I have a problem with God being king in this moment? Why do I have a problem with God being king as I advise my friend on how to live in a way that honors God? Why do I have a problem with a king when i 'm fighting with God as king when i 'm fighting against the leadership at my work, my school, my team, sport, club, whatever, my church, my homeowners association, whatever you bump into. Why why does my heart want to fight this so much? Why am I so against submission that I will die in the face of it? We have a tribe that's looking at God and saying, we refuse to submit, we want a new home. We refuse to submit, we're gonna steal that guy's priest instead of paying attention to, wait a minute, all of this is wrong. For ourselves. Parents, if you're confused why your kids won't obey you, have you asked if you've set a horrible picture of obeying God for them? Why would they obey your authority if you reject the one above you? Kids, are you rebelling against your parents? Then you're rebelling against God. God talked about that. Bosses, are you a wretched boss? God talks about that employees are you the worst laziest employee that could possibly be but because you have a christian boss you think it's okay god talks about that really what you're doing is rebelling against god you're refusing to submit against him and we need to learn that question instead of a statement i have a problem with you saying lord why do i have a problem with this What about my own sinful heart do I need to deal with before I can go hold somebody else accountable to you? Because Dan is a tribe that's rebelling. It's a tribe that has no king. And because it has no king, it has no inheritance. It goes and it takes its own and it's the wrong place. And every time you flip past those maps in the back of your Bible, pause and think about that. You see Dan in two spots and think, why? It's because of a rebellious, sinful heart. Christians, you have a king. We need to learn to submit to him. We need to read his words so we know what submission means and looks like. You have Christ's righteousness in you if you have put your faith in him. The Holy Spirit lives in you and is guiding you in righteousness, and that includes guiding you in submission. But it also means guiding you to your inheritance, your joy, your peace, your comfort, your protection, your place on a map. Because we have a king, and he's amazing and wonderful. And if you came into this room not knowing that king, but that tugs on your heart somewhere, you need to know what the Bible says about our king. That Romans road picture I put up earlier, you can read Romans and what you'll find is this. Romans one through three says, we have a sin problem that condemns us, To death, it sends us to hell. Every one of us, every person that exists and has ever existed, other than the person of Christ, has a sin problem. And sin is so offensive to God that it keeps us from Him. And the cool thing is, Romans doesn't stop there. Romans 4, 5, and 6 says that God's solution to that sin problem is His answer of the cross of through the person of Christ, second person of the Trinity, him taking our place, that he would die on the cross and be the sacrifice for sin that then Romans 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 say, Romans 10, 9, and 10 especially, if we put our faith in Christ, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. So if you came in today with no king, and you hear that and you think, huh, I've got a king problem. I have a sin problem that keeps me from my king. That can change today. Put your faith in Christ. But then Christians, Romans 12 through 15, still waiting, which says, because you have a king, live holy. Live out his righteousness placed on you as you're guided in the Holy Spirit. Live Holy. It's that simple. You see Dan rebelling against a king. If you pay attention to Christians, you'll see all of us all the time rebel against our king. The amazing thing is, and the reason it's okay, is grace. No condemnation. What we'll celebrate next Sunday, communion, restoration, redemption, adoption, and a bunch of other theological words that we get afraid of and run away from. They're beautiful because we have a king that loves us. And again, non-Christians, if you walked into this room kingless, and that sounds interesting, and you either have questions or you know that changed today, come talk to us afterwards. We'll have people praying up here. They would love to talk with you about that. Or you can ask somebody around you. If they've been coming to grace long enough, they may be terrified or surprised in the moment, but they should be able to tell you the gospel. You don't have to just walk up, but you are welcome to. You can find me over there after the service because you can walk away with a king and it's the best thing ever, best thing in the world. But we have a submission problem and too often we fight against that king. Lord, I don't want you. I don't need you. Get away from me and we don't realize we're running from our king and our inheritance. We see in the picture of Dan at the end of Judges, Judges is not an encouraging book, it's a discouraging one, It's, it's the nation falling apart. The encouragement is this, what comes after Judges? The path to the cross. Because they'll ask for a king rejecting God in the most flat out offensive way they could in that moment, And the awesome part of the amazing God that exists is He says, That's okay. I can redeem that question. Because the real King will be your Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. It's just going to take a little longer than you think. But we have a King, and we need to submit to Him, honor Him, and enjoy His inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, we praise your name. You are king. No matter how much we fight, you are king. And Lord, for Christians in the room, drag us kicking and screaming if you must into holiness, into enjoying your grace in the fullest sense of that statement. Living your grace Sharing your grace with a world that needs that king, that needs that grace. Lord, for any in this room that don't know you, make yourself real to them. Let them know your kingship. Lord, lead them to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.